I can set up in days or weeks that would take months or years to, to build custom. Welcome everyone to another episode of Analysis Paralysis. Today I'm here with Dan Fellers from OpenSide and we're talking about all things Airtable. If you're unfamiliar with Airtable at all, it's a very user-friendly database software. Think of Google Sheets, Excel, but it has a bit more structure in that it can actually be used at a mass scale for business processes. We talk about how you can leverage automation and the ever-evolving cloud software tools space to build custom solutions, all without the traditional development overhead. And that's essentially where Dan has transitioned his company from too. So enjoy the episode. Yeah, so I... Um have an interesting background school-wise. I studied undergrad economics at BYU in Utah. Okay. And my senior year in college, trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do. I didn't really love economics, but it was actually the shortest major at the university, so I stuck with it. But I, I was working for an internet company, so I graduated in 2000. So 99 and 2000 was the heyday of the dot-com. Yep. <laughs> and um, so I was working for an internet company, but on the project management side and was inter interacting with the engineers as just, you know, as a student intern and was like, man, I have no idea what these guys are talking about. So... I decided, actually, my wife was like, you should go to this open house for the uh, computer science department. So I was like, sure, I'll check that out. I'd never done programming or anything really up to that point. Mm -hmm. um, but so I decided to, I went to that and then decided to take the intro to computer science class that they offered the next semester. And so I took that and just completely fell in love with software engineering and development. So I completely changed the direction of my of my career. I just I took a couple more computer science classes while I was still finishing my degree in economics. What, what uh, was it in that first computer science class that that grabbed your attention? Was it a certain language that you're using or just the idea of like um, object oriented programming or just problem solving? Like what what was the thing that really pulled you in? I think it was um, just building something and seeing something that you built actually run and mm -hmm. the challenge, the puzzle solving of like hitting your head against the wall of trying to figure out, you know, why this thing isn't, isn't uh, compiling and, and generating the output that you want it to. Mm -hmm. And so that problem solving nature of like, you know, figuring out and then the satisfaction of once it worked and it completed the way that it was supposed to just, the enjoyment, I think partly, you know, doing economics is a lot of theoretical uh, analysis and whatnot, which is good, but you don't finish with something more tangible. So that that really appealed to me. Yeah. So you were able to essentially take your skill set and immediately apply it because I know a lot of people go to school and they'll learn something, you know, psychology, you know, philosophy, 
um, you know, English majors, for example. And then it's like they get out of school and they're like, okay, well, now what? Or even just like a business major. It's like, so do I start a business or like what really is even my skill set? Like I took a bunch of marketing courses and I don't really know what to do. Whereas something like coding and programming, you know, the, the fact that in your, in your free time, you're probably building some projects out and really embracing it. And you could probably even start getting some work while you're going to school. And you very quickly see, hey, you know, you can make money doing this. This is a career and, you know, I enjoy doing it. So that, that's awesome right. that you went through that. Yeah. Um, so then how did you kind of get started with, with your company and uh, what did it initially start off as? Yeah, so I, so I worked as a software engineer for many years in California, um, San Diego area where I'm from. And, uh, but always kind of had that interest in the business. My, my original plans were kind of to go into finance and um, banking or something along those lines. So always kind of originally had that business interest before I went the technical engineering route. So mm-hmm. After about six years um, working for a, for a startup in San Diego, uh, it was actually a gaming company. We were building some games, which is kind of cool on the engineering side. Um, I, I kind of was like, I'm ready for the next step. I wanted to get more on the business side. And I met with the management team, was like, hey, I want to get more exposure to marketing or strategy. And they kind of like put me in the engineering box was like, hey, that's great that you want to expand, but we really need you to finish these 20 projects that are on your plate. And uh, so I could never like break out of that mold of, of being, you know, one of the engineering team members. Mm-hmm. And so that's ultimately who I decided like, OK, I'm going to go back and get an MBA. And so I came back oh, to Utah geez. and did the MBA program at BYU. And that really opened my eyes up more to um, to the business world and in particular venture capital. And um, I interned with a venture capital firm and actually ended up working with them full time for about six months after I graduated. Mm-hmm. And um, well, well, so a question about that, because like this is something that I'm definitely interested in. I, I went to school for business and. I didn't go the path of MBA because, you know, my freshman year I started a business and I was just putting everything into it. But a few of my friends kind of with the MBA route, what was it about going into that program? Like when you got out, uh, did was it just you were more of a fit for these companies to take, you know, uh, a leap with you being an MBA student? Or did you make connections within the program with people that somehow connected you to, you know, the VC area? Like what was it about school that that got you essentially your first job in that area? Yeah, for sure. Um, the internship, so they were looking for MBA students. Um, and really okay. my technical background and being an engineer was what put me above the other people and actually really was my first foray into systems automation. Because uh, uh, what, what they were doing, they're a fairly new venture firm and they needed some help setting up their CRM. Ooh. And so the one big thing that I helped them a lot with their with the companies they were investing in technology companies, but a big part of what I did for them was configure Salesforce oh. for them. And uh, so that was really what helped me get in the door. So not only, you know, I was in the business world, I also the business school I went to had a venture capital student um, uh, fund that the students would actually invest. And so that got me exposure into the VC world. 
Interesting. And, so, um, so, yes. It, you've worked with Salesforce, and I'd be curious, like, maybe to take a step further because I want to take a, a step back afterwards. But um, when did you actually get to the point of wanting to start your own business? And, and then what were you, what was it in? Like, what did you focus on? Was it web development or CRM, like having Salesforce background? Like, what was that business? So, that was, um, that was, uh, so it was definitely a software business being having a software background. Um, the, after, after the VC firm, I worked with a healthcare publishing company and eventually became the CEO of that company. Oh, and, and one of the biggest challenges I had running that company and it was, it was a short company or a short, I was just there for just a short period of time. But the biggest challenge that I saw on the marketing side was all the different systems Hmm. that they were using. You know, every every marketing channel had its own software and none of them talked together. And we we just had to kind of you had to just deal with each one individually. So early on, I recognized this need of trying to integrate and and automate across systems. Mm -hmm. And um, so my original concept was actually an open source product that would kind of be a way for third-party developers, similar to like WordPress, but for marketers where people could build their own plugins that could do some kind of marketing function. Okay. And I wanted to build this base software system that third-party developers would then build plugins to. So that was the original idea. Um, realized getting into it, that it was a bit more bigger than, you know, than I could handle. Um, but I did get pretty far with it. And once I got to a point where I could demonstrate it, I actually started showing it to a few companies and I got two companies early on that said, Hey, this is cool. Could it be flexible enough to tailor to our internal use case of what we need built? Mm. So it kind of evolved into a custom application, um, software, shop okay and uh and that kind of uh was for several years probably the first five or six years and really and actually i still have legacy customers that are built on top of that software stack that that um that we built it's interesting so you're in a sense trying to build like a product and then you got forced into a service business like i i still consider custom development like that's yep. a service business at the end of the day correct um so like you you start off on the right foot like let's build a product and that's super scalable software as a service obviously everything's blowing up across the board to scale it um it, it doesn't take that much more to take on like one more client but once you start getting heavily custom then it takes up a lot of man hours to do that so uh it, it's interesting to kind of hear that you went through that and, and now you know based on what i know of you at the moment it almost sounds like that you're trying to move back into that that product space, you know, once again, now that you have a better idea of the needs of the market and finding a little bit of, of a niche in, within there. So I, I'd be curious kind of how you went through that path. How did you go, you know, kind of circle back to, to where you began? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I always knew that product was where, you know, it's, it's, it's what has the highest margins, the most scalable. And so I always knew that. Um, but a lot of it went to my philosophies on fundraising, like having worked in venture capital, raising money and getting seed money wouldn't have been hard. I knew, mm-hmm. I know all the venture capitalists sure, sure. Um, yeah. locally as well as many in the Bay area. And, and, um, 
but it never resonated with me personally on the way that I wanted to, to build my business. And um, so that's where, you know, the service route is, is very common way to go bootstrapped approach to um, generate revenue. Yeah, I mean, you're immediately trading your hours for money in a service-based business. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that's one of the big things that Gary talks about all the time as well, Gary Vaynerchuk, where he essentially um, started a service business and everyone was like, why? There's so much VC money flying around like crazy. And he's like, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, I want to I want to do this. I want to build a business versus there's so many people that will just get tons of venture backing. They'll build something. It will fail. And then they just kind of like ruin their name and they just made a little bit of a mistake on everyone else's dime. So um, I, I, too, have been very turned off by the VC space. I paid a lot of attention to it. I've obviously not been as involved as you have, but just listening to podcasts and, and obviously loving Shark Tank and all of that. But you're essentially right. giving up a percentage of your business. And I was listening to a really interesting podcast the other day where they were talking about Behance and how they were acquired uh, by Adobe. And the, the founder, he was running the numbers because he never actually wanted to sell. The idea was never to actually sell or be acquired and go that kind of VC route in any regard. And he said that he ran the numbers. And at that point, um, when, when Adobe was showing interest, them getting acquired for $300 million was no different than if they were to stick it out and and raise more money and grow and then eventually sell for like six seven hundred million dollars because at the end of the day right. you dilute yourself and right. it, you know the payday is the exact same regardless of if you sell now or two years from now and it's this really interesting aspect of you know it doesn't always make sense to just keep you know f raising more and more money um you know sometimes it just makes sense to just just uh you know focus on building your business or, or selling at that point or something like that. It was just a very interesting thing that I would have never really thought about. Yeah, for for me, it was um, like, I, I, like I'm not against the, the VC model. Like I still actually have several clients that are VC firms and, mm -hmm. and friends within the industry. Um, but I also saw like what that path looks like. Um, the VC firm that I worked with was a late stage investor and so i saw companies amazing companies that were you know on an ipo track and i saw like what was required to go down that path and oh. and that exposure really opened my eyes like i don't think if if i didn't know what that looked like i probably would have gone down that path hmm. um had somebody been willing to write me a check and so it, i think it was good to, to get that experience and and just know for myself that I mean, these are cool companies, like they're super impressive, met some amazing, amazing people. But for what I wanted to do, it just wasn't, it just didn't align with my personal goals. So, well, so what are your personal goals then? So you have a business that, you know, has some stability and, you know, service based primarily, but you're building into some of the product. Is the goal just to build some kind of like a lifestyle business with, you know, I don't know, five, 10 employees and just do well, treat your employees well, and just have something that you have control over? Yeah, for sure. That's, that's definitely more in line. Um, I think, um, you know, for me, a lot of it is, is, you know, definitely that financial independence. Uh, the, another thing that plays into it is being a little bit older as an entrepreneur. So when I started my company, um, I already had three children and my wife wow. was pregnant with our fourth. Wow. 
And, uh, and so that definitely factored into, I think, the decision of maybe going to maybe a little bit safer sure. and service-oriented route. Um, so that played into it. I think that definitely plays into the decisions I make now um, mm. as far as the, the, the amount of risk I'm willing to take and, and the path. Um, so, I mean, I really like working for myself. Like my last company, I learned that um, having a boss that that uh, I didn't see eye to eye with. Um, that 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 actually is what pushed me to decide. Okay, I'm ready to go on my own and do this mm. for myself. Um, so I think a lot of that independence. I do like realizing. I mean, I'm not a complete introvert, but I probably prefer working by myself yeah. on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that factors into it as well. So well, so how how has your team broken out in any regard? Do you do you have any employees, or are you using like some subcontractors and pulling people in here and there? Like, where are you at with that, and where are you, yeah. I guess, hoping to be? Because that's a big question that I have for myself, and I'm always trying yeah. to figure it out. So, yeah, that there's there there's a weird like. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how it is where you are, but here in Utah, like Utah is growing a lot. The, the, the tech scene is is pretty big right now. It's um, kind of a hub. And so there's a lot more venture money coming in. And and so I interact with these, these CEOs of other companies and software companies and all the metrics are around number of employees and amount yeah. of money raised. Like that's, that's yep. how you sort of de- define your worth within the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I always struggle with that as like, I don't really care about those two metrics, but yeah. I do want, you know, I do have, you know, I do have an ego to an extent and, and want to compete. Um, and so you struggle with that challenge of like, okay, do I try to grow and get more employees? So at one point I had three or four employees. When I um, made that change, it's been about six months now um, when I decided to scale back on the mm-hmm. custom software side of things and focus more on partnering. What I realized was just how hard it is to scale you know, the custom software approach. Um, sure, yeah. And really the hardest part was handing off the inherent knowledge that I have being the primary developer of the mm-hmm. code base, trying to be able to hand that off to somebody um, was very challenging. And so when I decided, I said, and this goes back into um, Zapier, how I became familiar with Zapier. Um, well, I'll, I'll save that story. That's an yeah. interesting one. But... Well, well, I guess so about that, because that's something that's obviously incredibly difficult, that when you start, especially in a service-based business, I think some of the goal is to grow it as much as you can on your own before you can, A, justify hiring another employee. And it, it gets tough, too, because it's like, you know, you have to do more than $100,000 in, in revenue um, before you can really consider hiring someone for maybe $30,000, dollars $60,000. Um, and then and at that point, you're not paying yourself well. So right. it's definitely a scary dive. And I think that's something that I've been um, playing with for a bit too long now. I've been finally, bit, like, I'm at a point now where we've, we've gotten a lot of growth, especially this year, that I need to start hiring more uh, people in general. But I always go back to, like, my company is so efficient and there's so many things that are integrated and automated that... Like I don't need to hire someone because I'm not overwhelmed yet with client work, right. and I'm not over, I'm not turning client work away because I have so much you know going on. Right. 
But at the end of the day, you need to build a team and slowly start handing pieces off, like what you mentioned, you know, hand a certain piece of development off because 80% is is better than that 100% that you would give yourself when you actually get to free up that amount of time with you. So making that leap is incredibly scary and difficult. And I think that's uh, probably one of the biggest things going from a solopreneur to actually having employees. And then, you know, the the risks and fears that come along with that. Now you have someone else on your payroll and maybe you need to deal with health uh, insurance and, and all the other things that, that come with that as well. Yep. Yeah. So I, so, you know, at our peak, the, the previous two years were good years. And so we had three employees and um, mostly engineering, um, one marketing. And um, so when I made that change, as part of that, I actually had a couple clients that scaled back drastically mm-hmm. um, on the custom development side. So I had to scale back the team, and 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 especially as I shifted, I needed a different skill set as well. Um, and so I'm actually right now without employees, with just contractors. My last mm-hmm. employee, um, actually last Friday was his last day, and um, so now I'm kind of. I definitely am in a little bit of a, a dip as I reposition myself mm-hmm. um, and start to scale back up. I'm starting to see signs of, of scaling, which is good. So have, have but, the yeah. people that have left, are they starting their own business in a similar industry or are they going to a, a different company in some regard? Yeah, they, they're all going to companies. Okay. Yeah. Oh, man. It, it, it's definitely got to be a dif- difficult thing, but at the same time, like you – that's the thing that I realized too, being in business that like the, the connections that you build over time, the clients that you build, uh, the, the name that you have, more people find you on Google organically and just the connections. So like, uh, you know, whoever you partner with, there's just so many leads that kind of come to you organically, the more you connect yourself. And at the end of the day, one of my mentors, he, he said to me, um, he actually was in similar business to us, but specifically for Salesforce. And he said to me that like, as much as my business was ABC Corp, he's like Salesforce and everyone else knew of my business by my name. At the end of the day, you are your business. You're the, the brand of your business that, you know, at Salesforce, they're not yelling, hey, you know, we need to get ABC Corp on this custom implementation. They say, no, we got to get Jim, right? Like it's, and, right. and you, that's, Really, you end up being the face of your company in this area unless you go more heavily into the product. But then I even argue that it, it is good to be kind of a face of your business, even if you are in a product in, in some regard as well. Right. Which is good and bad, right? Because then, you know, how do you how do you transition that yeah. away to get other people to? to oh, for sure. It? It's, it's, you know, the best thing and the, and the worst thing. How do you set the expectations of a client that, hey, I'm on this initial call because we really need to understand the scope of your work. But um, and I'll be involved in the project here and there. But you know, our our team is great, and they are going to be the ones that are going to be jumping in. And and the truth of the matter, the, the best way to to sell that, I guess, is you know, you hired a team that's better than you in certain aspects. So it's like, hey, I I have this rock solid automation person, and you want them working on your project. You don't want me working on your project for that. Like you know, right. we we can put everything together. But I think getting to that point, and it's tough to find that level of talent too. You know, unless you can pay them, you know, six figures. Uh, to even get them on board or you start talking about do I do I give up equity of my company and it's like does equity in your company even make sense when you're not looking to you know get VC or your service-based business like right. equity doesn't make sense at that point and you know it, it's, it's a very tough thing yeah no I totally hear you <laughs> so so tell me a little bit about how you know 
I, I, it, it makes a ton of sense as to why you found Zapier because like, I mean, come on, you love integration, you're dealing with all this stuff. So I'm curious how, uh, you know, you got involved with Zapier, how you found it, where you started playing around with it and, and kind of where that connection came into play. Yeah. So I remember, I still remember when Zapier first, um, I think I saw it on Hacker News first when it first came out mm. and I was already, this was, um, I don't remember what year they, they launched, but I think 2012 um, or 2013. 2012, yeah. So yeah. I was already doing my own thing and kind of working towards, um, actually probably had a couple clients at that point. And, um, but I, but that vision I had of this marketing platform, it, like the main component of it was integrating with different systems and, um, you know, kind of being the UI to maybe it didn't do like all the email sending or whatnot, but it was just the UI and then it would talk to a backend API. Sure. And so when Zapier launched, I was like, oh my gosh, that is the vision of what I had. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they executed much better than I had and had a much better designer than I had. And their <laughs> UI was, was much slicker. Hey, and well, so they went the VC route. I think right off off the bat, very early on, they got about like yeah. one point two, but then they right. just totally backed off. They became profitable quickly, and they yep. they haven't been doing anything with that. Yep. Yeah. So that so so I've I've followed them from the very early days because I had a very similar concept, um, vision, great. idea in mind. You know, different use case a little bit, but um, but anyways, over the years what I would actually tell people was, you know, I'd say, you've probably heard of Zapier and they'd say, yes. And I said, well, Zapier is great for basic integration. Um, but at some point it's not going to be able to do what you need it to do. And then that's when our custom solution comes uh -huh. in. And so I would always use Zapier almost as a negative, like, yeah, yeah. that's great for small projects or whatever, but, but you'll, you'll eventually outgrow it. Yeah. And then that's when you come to us. Sure. And so when I started reevaluating my business six or eight months ago, um, I went back to Zapier and I looked at Zapier again because I hadn't really played with it for the years and I'd seen how much progress they made. And in particular, their developer environment. Mm. And I realized, I saw like, hey, you can build anything you want and run it on their infrastructure. And so if they don't, if they can't do what my clients need out of the box and I can build a better solution. Mm. And so we started doing that. And so one of my clients was using Zapier for some of the stuff that they just wanted real quick and dirty, send a Slack message or something, mm. but they also used our platform for some of their more advanced stuff. And so I started reevaluating like, okay, why why couldn't we use zapier to do this and found that the crm they were using the connector for it on zapier was pretty limited it, you, there was a lot of stuff that you yeah. couldn't do so you really couldn't out of the box with zapier do what what they needed mm -hmm. and i said well okay well we can build a better version that that runs within zapier and does what they need and built that and then it was like okay it took us a year to build this custom application <laughs> i can replace this in weeks running it within zapier and That's then incredible the other the other sweet spot is you need something like an Airtable, which we rely heavily on um, and so the combination of those 
I can set up in days or weeks that would take months or years to to build custom. Oh, for sure. So that and was just that and was, the monitoring infrastructure of it. I think that was something. I think anyone right. that gets involved with with Zapier and they really start diving down the API and integration route, you get to a point where you're like, you know, Zapier can actually start getting quite expensive. Maybe we should build our own internal infrastructure. And then you start thinking through it and like. The simple fact that like if a zap fails, it auto retries or right. if way too many happen at once and they think maybe it's a bug, like it'll hold on to it and you can tell it to go through like just the infrastructure of reporting or seeing, and or seeing the data yeah. in and out of every step. Oh, like yeah. That. It, you know, like to build so your own cute. infrastructure, it, it makes literally no sense. And that's definitely I think that's it's a great thing, um, but it's also a terrible thing because like you're really building your company on someone else's software and in, in a way Correct. which it's a little bit scary right but like Correct. i it, it does not make sense for you to build your own infrastructure at the end of the day and, and the icing on the cake is that a client could come to you and they want you to integrate some random uh software that you've never heard of and and chances are there's a zapier integration and they probably don't need something crazy to happen where they need something custom it could just be quick so throw it in there like you, you can literally have your custom integration go and then uh the next step could just be a, a native zapier integration do something super simple and it, like that's the beautiful aspect about using someone else's platform though in addition to just the reporting and infrastructure aspect correct yeah very true. So, so when you got involved with this, did did these clients of yours have their own Zapier accounts, or you know, I'm you said that a lot of people did they've they've heard of Zapier. I, I definitely had a, kind of an opposite experience where even technical friends of mine they had never heard of Zapier. And maybe one of the things is is being based on the East Coast, and that's where things are a little bit different. But even like a few years ago, like people that were very heavily into integration, they had never heard of Zapier. And that when I showed it to them, their eyes just like lit up. They're like, wow, this is this is a big thing. So the clients, what are the clients that you're looking at or working with that they've actually heard of Zapier and did they were they already using it? So I mean that would be like the like the VC firm who okay. you know definitely would know of um, um, the Hawaii yeah. the the client that that we moved away from they actually had Zapier without me telling about telling them about it. Um, so he the CEO is 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 not technical but definitely um, interested in software solutions. So he's always out looking um, mm. other industries um, that. Um, you know, we do some stuff in the marketing. So we've done a lot in the marketing space. So some marketers typically have heard of it. Okay. Well, it's it's actually interesting that um, our our one of our largest clients right now is is also actually a VC firm. And there's something that um, inherently VC firms can benefit substantially from having a nice CRM in place and then also the automation and integration aspect because um, often VC firms will be using things like PitchBook or, or various other program or you know databases online to find what's going on with uh, the startups in the space and like show me all of the startups in Series B that have you know raised more than four million dollars in this specific space. Like where else can you get that? Well, it's from one of those online databases. Well, now how how do we take this information out and store it in your database and then actually further go through it and manipulate it and and do outreach and follow up and and build relationships with people? CRM is so much at the core of that. So I'm curious what you've done with some of these VC firms. Um, you know, did they already have a CRM in place? Was it something like Salesforce? How did you pull Airtable into the mix or, or do you not use it with them? Like, what does that look like? 
So the the client my my the client that I used to work with full time um, that's on Salesforce they still run on Salesforce. Mm-hmm. I'm pitching them on Airtable, um, and they've kind of explored Airtable from for for other types of projects, but not their core CRM. So they're sure. still very much tied to Salesforce. Um, but the other clients that I have, I actually found through Airtable. So they were already on Airtable or looking wow. to adopt Airtable as their primary CRM and then brought us in to, to implement that. Well, so, so this is interesting. This is something that I, I didn't even realize. So you will actually pitch Airtable as a CRM replacement because obviously Airtable is incredibly flexible. Um, so is, is this something that, that you do often or do you have many clients that have a CRM in place and they leverage Airtable? Because you could leverage Airtable regardless of what you're using. So I probably don't pitch it as a CRM, but companies find us because they're already thinking of using Airtable as their CRM or already started to and then need somebody to, to, to really get it implemented. Mm. Um, so I don't know that I would pitch it like there's, I love Airtable, um, but it can't replace everything that a CRM can do. Sure. But for certain use cases, some people like w- one of the clients, which is a, a very large financial service company, um, they, you know, most of the guys are familiar with Salesforce. They've used it at other previous um, firms. And the main guy who's running is like, I do not want to use Salesforce. I hate it. I love Airtable. Mm. This is what we want to build on. I was like, okay, we'll do it. Mm, very interesting. And, uh, yeah. So usually they're they're finding me through Airtable. Um, any of my existing clients that I've had, they they all still use a separate CRM. So I actually haven't moved any of my previous people off of their CRM onto Airtable. Okay. Well, so so for those who might be listening, I, I think Airtable, it's something that, that I bring up all the time. It, and I normally use it kind of in the back end, uh, maybe to explain a little bit what it is. I mean, it's essentially a, a database, a very, very, very user-friendly database, almost like a, an Excel or, or Google Sheets, but m- like more user-friendly and more powerful in so many different aspects. And it, right. at the core of what a CRM is, is a database. It stores, you know, people, companies, opportunities, uh, tasks, and things like that. And it just gives you a different kind of user interface to interact with it. Whereas Airtable, it's a little bit more raw. You're seeing the records that exist in each row and how things are related and correlated. Um, and it, it is incredibly powerful to use as just a database, or you can really do anything with it. I know... Um, Kelsey Bratcher, who actually does the Get Automated podcast, he uses Airtable to track all of his guests that he has on the podcast. And he does a lot of like automated email marketing and things like that. And then automated posting to his social channels from Airtable. Like you can literally, he's using essentially as a CRM, a a podcast CRM. And um, it's incredibly powerful and you could, you know, make it be whatever you need it to be. So I I totally see why you fell in love with it. Why, you know, you use it as much as you have been. I, I'd be curious, what other software are you using aside from Airtable? Um, so, so for project management, we actually just moved um, to a new one called ClickUp. Oh, okay. That I actually love. I, it's, you know, project management, there's tons of them out there mm-hmm. and they all, you know, have overlap, but ClickUp, for whatever reason, just sort of speaks to 
the way that I would set it up if, if I were to build something from scratch. Um, so I really like ClickUp for project management. Um, uh, what, so what, what is it about it versus something like an Asana or a Trello or, you know, using your CRM for project management? What is the difference? Yeah. Um, so Asana, I know you use Asana. Yeah. I, I tried to use Asana early on and, and, um, I don't know if I can remember what I didn't like about it, but it just didn't. Oh, just I didn't hated sport. it. Three years ago. <laughs> I, I think three, yeah, three or I four years it. ago. Yeah. I, I tried it. Um, I hated it. Then I moved to Trello. I fully embraced Trello. Like it, I liked it, but I also didn't. And then I just slowly stopped using Trello. And then about a yeah. year, year and a half ago, I was in an incubation space and this one guy there was using Asana and I was like, do you, do you actually like that? And he was like, yeah, I love it. And he was using the list view. I was always so used to, um, you know, the, the, the board view. And uh -huh. when I saw him use the list view and I had him show me it, I was like, you know what, I will give this another try and I'll, I'll try the list view because that's really the core competency of Asana. Like the board view is really more of an afterthought and they're going to have some functionality where you can switch between the two within a project, which has been a freaking requested feature for three years mm -hmm. now. But um, I, I totally agree with you. I hated Asana. There's no guardrails. It's confusing. There's so many things yeah. going on, but they've definitely made a lot of progress over the past couple of years. Interesting. Yeah. So ClickUp, yeah, it has both board and, and Kanban and okay. uh, list view. And just like the, the way that they organize, like it's, it's got a really nice UI. Just, just, I, I just like the way that they organize things. I don't know. It's just how my brain works. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I'd be curious to you, like when you're actually evaluating software, how, I, I'm just, just a curious thing. Um, Within how long of using the software do you kind of make that decision of this is not not a piece of crap, but like this is just not up to up to snuff? Because I feel like the more you work in this space, the more you can pretty quickly, you know, determine that. And I'd be curious what yeah. factors you look at. Yeah, you're probably the same as me where like I, I love, I, you know, I sign up to everything yeah, yeah. And, and try it. And, and pretty quickly I can make, you know, make my estimation of if it's something that that I would use or not and what do you look at um I mean I think a lot of it I I could you know I think I use my software background like I can kind of tell how they're architected mm. to see like if it if it can grow um to support you know a lot of things look really nice if you've just got a few things in there yep but how does it handle when you've got thousands or you know more? Um, how hard is it to move around and do things? Um, so things like that. Um, I don't know. I don't have a checklist of, of yeah, things. Yeah, it, it's for. it's weird. I mean, definitely like UI, UX, and things like that play play a role in it. But like what you mentioned, um, you kind of just get a feeling as you start using it that it's just like. This is this is going to be good. This is scalable, and it's great having right. that background where you can actually evaluate it. I'm looking at ClickUp right now, and um, it's funny because even just the marketing website that they have, it's very clean. They have a cool color scheme. Um, you know, it stands out. It's it's purple, and it it looks nice. And I'm like, I, it makes me want to sign up and see what it's all about. You know, so that's yeah. they're they're definitely yeah. serving the purpose. Yeah. Um, another one. Um... Uh, so, so I used to use Trello quite a bit. I've actually moved all my Trellos into Airtable. So Airtable, oh. Airtable can replace Trello yeah. uh, very easily. 
Um, it, it has the same view, it has the same functionality of moving stuff from one board to another. Um, Are there more API endpoints, essentially, like triggers with Airtable than something like Trello? Or with your, your extension, yes, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I, I never played much with the Trello API. Ah, okay. um, so I don't know. I, I'm guessing that they probably have more um, triggers um, gotcha. because, yeah, you know, it's probably got a little bit more structure around the way that they do things, whereas Airtable mm -hmm. is it's a bit so more. It's so open that their yeah. some of their triggers are are quite broad. You can you can right, focus them right. down, but and you got to kind of build the functionality or or build the trigger that you need. Sure. Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. And and you typically work with companies that use G Suite, or are you open? Like, what? I, I guess okay. A new company comes to you, and they say. I'm guessing one of the early questions that you asked is what what is your software stack and what are you looking to do? Um, are, is there any required software that you make them use? Like I won't work with them unless they're willing to use Airtable or, or is that G Suite or some type of CRM? Like what do you have any criteria in that area? So it used to be, um, you know, up until six months ago, we would only do stuff that made sense for our software stack. And so there would be times where somebody already had something that they had a developer build and they wanted us to take it over. And I'd say, no, you know, we'll rebuild, but that'll take time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it used to be, you know, it was just around our software. Um, but now um, we, we haven't, although, you know, mainly because all of our, all of our um, interactions have been mostly with the Airtable community. Airtable is definitely mm. um, core to that. So I'd say Airtable, but um, it depends. It depends because we, we kind of, if we're doing implementation work, then I'm getting to the point where Airtable is going to be involved in some extent. It may not be the core database, but it's, it, it's going to, likely be involved in some way but we also market directly to um, companies that um, don't want to build their own integration connector to zapier maybe they don't have the development resources and so they partner with us to build that custom connector mm, okay and um and so we have um we're in talks with a couple companies we haven't finalized anything yet but um but that's another avenue that we've explored. Okay, interesting. So like what would you say is if someone were listening and they needed help, you know, specifically Airtable, because I, I, I know no one better um, at Airtable than you based on just what we've talked about and what you've built out, you know, what would kind of the criteria be of, you know, it, do you do you work with them to then like figure out their business process or do you typically like the client to have a, f a full idea of what they already want to do like what it, it sounds like there's probably some level of consulting involved in your services and that's one of the things that's tough to hand off to an employee and right. I think that come kind of comes back to that but like what does your process typically look like um, from from client outreach to actually turning them into a customer and seeing if they're actually a good fit for your services yeah, so so the good and bad about um, Airtable is is the flexibility. So 
the good thing is it can kind of do everything. The bad thing is it can kind of do everything, which means every client that we've talked to has a very unique use Uh case. And, um, but usually they're coming to us with their use case um, of saying, you know, this is the problem that we're trying to solve. You know, Airtable is easy for for anybody of any skill level to engage with, but then you, but then they realize like, oh, this is kind of getting above my skill level. Mm. But they're used to doing things in Excel. You know, I'm sure I don't know what the percentage is, but many businesses. In fact, I'm about to engage with a new client that's a very large company that basically runs on Excel, and oh, we're going boy. to you know move them into Airtable. And, um, and so that transition, you know, I think there's many companies out there that still function within Excel hey, and that's know, their workflow. I'm, I'm actually speaking to someone a little bit later this week who just started a company around helping configure uh, Excel for, for companies. And, you know, I, I'm torn by it because I think at the very least use something like Sheets because it has a lot more API integration endpoints. But at the end of the day, like if you're looking at Google Sheets, why would you not use Airtable? Um, right. the, a client that we're actually just about to work with, we're actually migrating them over from Google Sheets uh, to Airtable. So that's, yeah. it, it, you know, I think that Sheets and Excel had a purpose. But when you talk about, they're not like a proper database. So I think maybe just break something down really quick. Airtable is a proper database in the sense that a row has to be formatted. Like say that you have a function set for for a row, it goes across the entire row. Whereas in Excel, like you can literally pick a random cell and a random row and a random column and do a, a function and a, that makes it so it doesn't function all that well. You can make an, uh, you know, an Excel sheet or a, um, a Google sheet take a very long time to do, run all these formulas and things going on because you just have so many random things running at random places, whereas a proper database is formatted in a way and, and built to do lookups and relation relational information and things like that in a way that makes sense. Um, so Airtable can really handle that kind of stuff very well, whereas Excel, you very quickly start seeing the limitations of it just from the relational aspect of of actually creating two records and two different tables, uh, I guess, bases in this extent and, and connecting them and feeling like they're actually connected versus just like a lookup. Like a VLOOKUP is not a connection. It's just a lookup. So. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's where I think a lot of people, you know, see they know that Excel has many limitations and, and, um, you know, bringing that a little bit more modern into, into mm-hmm. Airtable is a natural transition where they feel comfortable. Um, so usually they're coming to us with, with the process. So, you know, a lot of it is, is helping them flush that out, define it. Um, and then, and then from there, you know, because it isn't a known process of what the output's going to look like, like I can't, um, you know, maybe a little bit different for you of implementing CRMs, like I, every new customer, I can't, you know, it's completely different than yeah. the last one, which is, which is good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the efficiency and the scalability yeah. becomes difficult when, right. when the more custom that you get. And I think that's just a, you know, I, I think the goal is in the future to build more templates out. Like the more clients that we work with, I'm feeling the same with you, the more you can get a general idea of, 
you know, what a, a general client needs. And then at least you could build a correlation. So that initial call when you talk with them and you see something, if you had seen it before a little bit different, then you have a better idea of the scope of work. Whereas if you've never seen it before, there's going to be a massive involvement for, you know, this diagnosis phase of figuring out like, what is this scope of work even going to look like? Because we don't even understand. This is totally new to us. So I think the more companies you work with, but then you're just kind of storing this information in your brain. And that's where things become difficult too, because it's like, at the very least, it seems like you are always going to have to be on that initial call to understand the scope of work and the actual client needs of, I don't think you can ever remove yourself from that, right? Right, right. So Yeah, for sure. But if, if I can, if that's, you know, at least for that first step, that's kind of the first step is where I'm just involved in, you know, in that initial, um, but then have a team that does the implementation. Hmm. But it's true. When I first started doing Airtable projects, you know, like you kind of play with Airtable. So I thought I knew it, but I didn't really knew it until I was really doing yeah. some more complex stuff. And now I feel like I've got definitely a, a better grasp of it. But that first project was pretty painful. I grossly underestimated how long it would take. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and lost money on that. I mean, but that's, that's the way that it is in this space, right? Like, you know, your right. initial clients are a learning curve and they're getting massive value from you learning on them as bad as that sounds. Like it's, it's a win-win right. in that regard. You're, you know, losing money because the project is much larger than you thought. And at that point too, you're probably not comfortable with like, is this actually a scope change or is this part of the project? And often when you're learning, you just kind of include it all and then you really get hit on the pricing with that. But what you learn from that and the confidence you get of like, shoot, I just built something that a $3 million a year you know, revenue business is running their infrastructure on. Like that's value right, right there. That, that you know, it, it just validates everything about your business. Yeah, for sure. So I, I have one more question, um, and then I, I think like anything that you want to bring up or ask or talk about, more than happy to before we kind of end it. Um, I'm I'm curious, have you had any experience with Coda, and has that you know um, if you have dove in because I know they're in a way trying to be the replacement for Google Sheets, Google Docs. Um, but they also have this big piece to it that is almost like an Airtable replacement. And I've definitely yep. gone back and forth. I'm still using Airtable as that core, but I'm using Coda in a big place in my company. I, I don't know. I'm, not, I'm in a weird spot with it. Like, I like the competition. I think it's great for both companies. But, you know, what's your feeling on that if, if you have used it? I have, um, I, you know, I've signed up. I've played with it. Um, I haven't adopted it. Um, so I feel like at least where it's at now is uh, it's almost that paradigm of where it's trying to be all things yep. for all people, but mm -hmm. not great at any one thing. Yep. And so that's probably why I haven't adopted it. Um, you know, everybody, I mean, I think it can get there. I think it definitely has promise. Um and is cool, but it, it wasn't enough for me to, to, to fully adopt. Yeah, um, I, you hit the nail on the head with that. Like they are, there are people that are using it as a project management. Some people using it as a CRM. Some people using it as like a storage database and just all, and, and other people just using it as a shared, you know, document that you can comment back and forth on. And I think one of the big things that I've noticed is the longer tables you get, it gets a little bit laggy, the page, whereas mm -hmm. Airtable is definitely more built for that type of thing. Um, but one of the cool things, like, man, definitely keep an eye on Coda, though, because they're doing some really cool stuff with um, with like buttons. So within 
a, a table, essentially like an air table or whatever, um, but within Coda, you can have another column that's labeled as a, as a button. And it's just a clickable button and you can trigger it then to, to be an automation. So when I click this button, you can have it update um, you know, this row and this row and this row, or, you know, these three different rows with this value within this column, or you can have the clicking of the button, uh, create a, a row in a different column, or I guess essentially like a different base. And you can just, you can have these triggers that are very user-friendly. So I have a few things set up where like one of my clients, they could go in and we have a bug report built out for that. And it works really well for bug reporting because the client can literally just type or, you know, click the button of saying, you know, confirmed complete. And that means that he went on the site, he took a look at it and it's, it, the bug is no longer existent. And we have that trigger a few things on the back end. And I know uh, Coda is doubling down on that aspect because it's a very user-friendly thing where you can literally hide all of these confusing rows and just have literally a button that your client can see and just do massive actions, uh, you know, push over to Slack and all this stuff just based on clicking one button. And it's a right. very cool concept that they've been working out with. And, and you know, it's been fun to play around with. Um, but it's overwhelming too. <laughs> the amount of things right. you can do is right. like, holy crap, like I'm overwhelmed. So, um, but yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. But, and you have your, see, and what I haven't been able to fully adopt is getting my customers into something like a Coda where you can really collaborate with them. That's That's a challenge that I've had where, they still just prefer email. I do have some on Slack, um, but trying to get them to adopt something like that. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because um, I haven't had an issue with it, but I, it's part of my onboarding. So once they make that initial uh, diagnosis phase payment, I have an automation, you know, create a Coda doc from a template and it invites the customer to that document. And I only work with companies that use G Suite and Copper CRM. Um, so mm -hmm. inherently, they're already using G Suite. And how do you get into Coda? Well, there's a login with Google button. So there's right. no overhead of that. And then it's also a file that exists within their Google Drive. And yeah, at the end of the day, like I'm sure it's a little bit confusing initially and things like that. But the more that I keep my note, like I'm always just using it for myself. And this is where I'm building out all the documentation for them. And then I will tag them and they just get an email alert that says, you know, hey, and it's a comment like to resolve it, click here and they click there and they can respond to it and then resolve the comment. So it, they don't even necessarily need to be up in front in Coda. They're really being pulled in whenever I tag them within it. And for me, it's really just my storage place for all of our right. shared documentation. Because like, where do you share or like store documentation with clients right now? Um, how, how does that actually work for you guys? Yeah, and so that's where, um, so my new customers, I still need to, to figure that out. The old ones, so one of the challenge um, is they already had, so like one of my customers has, you know, was already using Basecamp. So Basecamp mm -hmm. was their project management. And so instead of trying to get them to adopt what I was using, I went into Basecamp into their environment and, um, you know, and so depending on the client, some of them I have to work within their world instead of trying to get them to come into mine. Yeah, I, it's it's very difficult, though, with that, because like there's a standardization that I feel like you need to have in order to stay sane and to stay on top of right. all of your clients that it's like. Um, I, I've talked to some of my clients as well, because every client of ours, they're on some type of monthly commitment. 
And at the end of the day, some clients are thinking like, well, you know, why do I have to keep paying monthly if some of these automations that you built are kind of just like running? And there's a cost associated with keeping your entire business model and processes um, top of mind for our team at the end of the day. That, you know, there's so many times where I've been sleeping and waking up having an idea, um, literally working through automation in my dreams or jumping in the shower and like thinking through something and solving it for one client, be like, oh, this would be awesome for this client as well. And what's the value of that, you know, keeping that, that, that mental mind share that exists. So there's a lot that goes into kind of that in addition to just the monitoring and the maintenance and um, the upkeep that comes with, with that. And it, it's tough to get that across until you have right. a few of those moments and you show them the value there. And like, you know, this one idea that we just had because you're front of mind, that probably just saved you 10 hours a week. You know, what's the right. value of that? Well, more than the X amount that you're paying us per month. So, right. Um, right. but you know, so... You've got some uh, exciting dreams there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, I had a very massive dream uh, specifically about copper. I was like, I was trying to invest in them and in, in the dream. And then I was just like, um, I woke up and I literally asked Google to remind me of how to start a VC firm because I found out that was the only way that I can invest in copper. And then I woke up uh, and I looked at my phone and I'm like, what? Like, why did I think that was a good idea? Like, I'm not going to start a VC firm. Like, what is wrong with me? Uh, but, but, you know, it's just the stuff that happens when your mind just lives and breathes all this stuff, you know, you have some very funky, funky things going on. Um, we but, could build a, uh, fully automated VC firm, right? <laughs> oh, that's great. No, I, I, I th- that would actually be kind of a cool experiment to do. Cause I, there's, there's value there where a lot of VC firms are a little bit outdated in what they do. And I, and I really do see a massive, benefit to having a solution for a VC firm because a lot of VC firms are similar in that they need that customer relationship management and they need that platform. Um, and there's just so many similarities between it. That That's definitely an area that's been interesting to me. Have you found any specific markets, uh, market segments, industry verticals that have been uh, interesting to you aside from the VC space? So that's definitely... Um, one of our challenges is trying to, you know, go after that. Um, I'd probably say between financial services, um, real estate is one that we've, mm-hmm. we've made some traction in. Um, and then, um, you know, because workflow automation is, is, is a, um, horizontal, you know, it's not a vertical, it's, it's mm-hmm. tough to, uh, tough to nail down. And, and so we haven't been able to really do that other than definitely VC firms. Like it's, it's pretty evident, like we'll, I'll get direct um, firms reaching out to us. It's pretty clear that, mm-hmm. that we kind of are the experts in that within the Airtable um, world. But uh, no, that's, that's definitely something that's on our to-do list to try to nail down. Yeah, I, I mean, it's tough because like once you do figure out one of those verticals that makes a ton of sense, that's where you actually at least start seeing some some overlap or at least some flexibility of. Um, so, for example, we, we work a lot with with uh, home improvement type companies, home service companies. So we have a painting firm, we have a bathroom, you know, kitchen, we have a roofing company. 
And as different as they are, they have a very similar process. Like you have that initial meeting and then from there you have the proposal and like, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. the estimate or whatever. And it it starts being really consistent to the point where we can actually go to a new company in a similar type of service and implement kind of the same type of infrastructure with just a few tweaks to their specific needs. But implementation for them and the scope of work for them is so much more consistent than now, oh, hey, today we're going to this ABC Corp and they have a crazy custom process because they're a cutting edge company that, you know, they're they're trying to build their process in Zapier and they're using, you know, 60 to 80, you know, Zaps, uh, which is totally overkill for what should be done and, it, and it's not efficient. Um, jump diving into one of those projects is just, oh, it's it's a lot. And I, I question every single day of like, do we just focus on what what is repeatable and what makes sense and what's really helping these companies grow from, you know, a couple million to a few million? Or do we, you know, start expanding? Because I love dealing with new companies and seeing what they're working on. And, you know, but, but does that mean that that's the right business move to make right. for your company? Right, for sure. Yeah, and even especially when with Airtable, like, the VC firms that we have, they're not all using it as a CRM. And mm. so even though they're the same type of company, they're using Airtable for different things. So some sure. are still using a third-party CRM, but they're using Airtable for some other workflow that they've got. Mm. So it gets very difficult to try to to replicate the same workflow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like that that one that two way sync. Uh, essentially, like we had a client, uh, potential client, reach out once. They were using a CRM and they were using Airtable, and they're like, half our team loves using Airtable. The other half of the team yeah. loves using the CRM. How do we sync that data back and forth? And I'm like, it's not that easy. Um, but there are some yeah. workarounds and stuff. But at the end of the day, it just it didn't make sense that like I think it makes more sense to get your team to fully embrace Airtable or to fully embrace a CRM because this is this is a bit much. For, for well, yeah, we have we have a client who, um, yeah, half the team prefers Google Sheets and the other half mm. prefers Airtable, and so oh, they want rough. In between Google yeah, Sheets. Really rough. And Sometimes like, you just need someone higher up to be like, "This is the decision that we're making," and yep. you know, and and push it because people hate change. People love what they're used to, and you know, even that that move from Excel to Google Sheets is the biggest pain that I've ever experienced when I was an IT company. It, it is incredibly painful, even though they are so incredibly similar. It's right. just, you know, what people are used to and yeah. people hate learning something new, you know, spending that extra 10 seconds to look into the files menu to figure out where something is versus before they, they remember the shortcut or whatever, or exactly where it was, the level of frustration and, and people don't want to take that, you know, three month learning curve that it's going to take to become proficient in it. And, you know, and that, that's something that we're constantly going to be experiencing in this business is, is, yep. you know, but it's also the fun in it, I guess. <laughs> yep. Yep. So. For sure. So is there anything else that I guess comes to mind that you want to talk about or, you know, if not, feel free to just talk about, you know, how people can find you and uh, and we can kind of end it out. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just your your scenario of trying to do the two way sync. I was just going to put a plug for our, our uh, Airtable connector. So so one of the um, one of the if you go on to the Airtable community site that they've got, one of the biggest challenges is, is people trying to um, work more with the API and in particular with Zapier and frustrations with the limitations that come from the Zapier connector. And so 
what we did was we we faced those same limitations and decided to um, that there'd be an opportunity there. So it took several months, but we built a Zapier connector that um, does very advanced uh, stuff with with Airtable, and um, we have a one-way sync right now. We have uh, plans for a two-way sync. Um, but it can do many other things. It can get updates on on or do triggers on updates, which is one of the most highly requested mm. features um, in many other things. And so that really is a game changer for Airtable when you layer on the brains of, of using Zapier to perform automations in the background mm. is what takes Airtable from just a data storage to allowing it to be a workflow system. Yeah. So OpenSight is is experts in that and um, and doing a lot of cool stuff in that world. And so OpenSight.com, you can check us out. I'm just Dan at OpenSight.com. For sure. I'll, I'll link it in, in the show notes and um, I could definitely vouch for it as well. I think that's one of the things that if you dive into Zapier, um, I, I think a lot of the connectors, the triggers and the actions that are built are the very common use cases. But once you start going a little bit deeper, there's a lot of needs that you have. And I, there's a very specific one that always sticks with me with Airtable. And that's um, this, this very powerful trigger is that you can create a new view within Airtable and have it so, you know, if, if this box is checked or if this value is this, then it could be shown into the new view. And the addition of that row, or sorry, that, um, that yeah, that, that row into the new view, it will trigger an automation. But but as you know, Dan made very clear that like that's a one-time thing. If you then remove it and then you add it back, that trigger no longer exists, no longer works. It's a very specific use case and it's tough to explain unless you've really played around with it. But you start seeing very quickly how limited some of the triggers are through Airtable. And I, and I wouldn't have expected you know it, it to function the way that it does, but that's where he's gone and built things to work around that. So all for sure, um, I will have a link up for that and maybe we can even get a, a coupon code or something specific um, that'd be great yeah so cool hey i appreciate uh you know spending the time this has been really enjoyable and i'm sure you know we can catch up again in the future to kind of see where things are going and uh, i'm sure we'll we'll be working in the future as well because you're definitely the go-to air table expert for sure appreciate it yep for sure okay cool man i'll talk to you later all right take care see ya This is Alex Bass with Analysis Paralysis. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. The funny thing about podcasting is there's really no standardized way to leave reviews and to really support kind of the creators. I'm doing this simply because I enjoy talking to people about this type of content and I love sharing it with you guys as well. There's a lot of work that goes into editing the episodes and we spend a lot of time listening to them and reviewing them and pulling out teasers and everything. So if you appreciate what we're doing, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can go to iTunes. I have a link aparalysis.com forward slash review. It's always tough asking for this type of thing, but genuinely, it's the only thing that could really help us thrive and grow. We don't have a massive community, but we have uh, many of you that really want to just help, and this would really, really help. So thank you so much for listening, and if you're interested at all in automation, efficiency, CRM, business process, then feel free to reach out to me directly 
at Alex H. Bass on Twitter, or you can email me at abass at aparalysis.com. I would love so much to talk to many of you. Some of you have already reached out and we've had awesome, awesome conversations. All right, thank you so much.